Amen. So thank you, Jonathan. Our scripture passage this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, feel free to do so. There's a Bible in front of you in the pew, but if you don't have one, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me if you're at home. Uh, it'll be on your screen as well. And so it's a resurrection passage on this Resurrection Sunday. And so we're going to read verse 1 and then verses 6 through 16. As Paul writes to the Corinthians. So follow along with me. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I speak, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing, and here's the key, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake so that grace extends to more and more people, so as it extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we do not lose heart. This is God's word. Say with me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. There's a scene in uh, the Narnia books where a little girl, her name is Lucy, she comes upon Aslan the lion, if you're familiar with the story, uh, Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. He invites her to come and to come near to her, near to him, and to approach him. She is rightfully afraid because, of course, he is a lion after all. She says, "Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come?" And Aslan says, "I make no such promises." She gets a little more bold. She says, "Do you eat little girls?" And he says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Now, C.S. Lewis's way of reminding you and me that the truth claims of Christianity are too big to believe and not be changed. That the resurrection is too big a truth to believe and to be casual about it. If you believe these things to be true... There is one option. Jesus will swallow you up. So here's the question. Will you dare to come to him anyways? Will you dare to come to him and be swallowed up by him? That is really the only option that is before us this morning as we gather this morning. But that's, that's what we have to wrestle with. Will you dare to come to him and be swallowed up? Because here's what I want you to see. That they say to preachers on Sundays, to not, we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. We should have two goals for a Sunday morning sermon, to be quick and to be clear. Amen? So those are my goals, to be quick and clear. And so here's what I want to talk about this morning. Resurrection, first, is a truth so big that you need help believing it. And secondly, resurrection is a truth so big that you can't believe and not be changed by it. 
As we think about the reality of resurrection, there are really two things it presses us towards. It presses us towards faith and it presses us towards obedience. But the reality is, is it's a truth too big, so big that we need help believing it. And it's a truth so big that if we believe it, we can't help being changed by it. So let's just look at the text in, under those two headings. You'll see them be the outline that I've provided for you in your worship folder. So first, the core of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus, God's vindication of Jesus, the proof that he is, in fact, who he says he is, and everything he said is true. If Jesus is not alive, then Christianity is dead. We are still in our sins. If he is not alive then this world is all there is. Nothing matters. The only future we can look forward to is that the sun will eventually die and everything on earth will die and it will all be for nothing. But Jesus is alive. That's what Christianity says. That's what Christianity declares. And it's a truth so big that you need help believing it. But first, before I get to that point, specifically what does it mean to be a person who believes in resurrection? What is, what is the faith? What is the belief that the resurrection tries to pull out of you? And there's a few things. And I want you to notice first that it means you believe something about God. I mean, notice the way it's put here. It says in verses 13 and 14, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. It doesn't say that we know God raised Jesus from the dead. It says that we know the God who raised Jesus from the dead. There's a similar statement in Romans 4 where Paul's discussing that rightness with God is through faith, not works. And he describes the faith that makes you righteous like this. He says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So faith is not just believing that Jesus has been raised. It is believing in him who raised him from the dead. God is the object of faith. His person, his character. In other words, the resurrection is not just a doctrine. The resurrection invites us into a relationship with the person who has made these things so. Let's don't miss that. So the obvious question then is, well, what can we know about God because of the resurrection? What does the resurrection help us believe about God? And there are many ways to answer that question, but I will say... We can, because the tomb is empty, definitively know that God is both all-powerful and also loving. I mean, the resurrection was the display of God's power, not just to raise Jesus, but to raise to life all the other dead things in the world along with him. But also, but also, it is his justice and wrath against sin. It is the testimony that his justice and wrath against sin have been satisfied, and now his healing love has been unleashed upon the world to make all things new. I mean, the world no longer lies under condemnation. It is being saved. That's what Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, verse 17. And so today, in light of the resurrection, you can know that God is strong, and you can know that he is love. And you have to believe both are equally true, or your faith will be deformed. So you got to ask the question, what does the resur- resurrection ask me to believe about God? But secondly, not only does it mean you believe something to be true of God... It means that you believe that Jesus has truly been raised. The resurrection is not a myth. It is not a metaphor. It is not sentiment. The resurrection, these stories, is history. Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. There's no debate about that. He was crucified. Again, no debate among the historians about that. He was placed in a tomb. A stone was rolled over the entrance. But then on the third day, they came to the tomb, and it was empty. Now, that's where the debate begins. It's like, well, how how did that happen? And here's what we can say. Jesus 
in the days following appeared to the women first and then to the disciples and then to more than 500 eyewitnesses who saw him and spoke with him and touched him and ate with him and then he ascended back to heaven. And here's what Christians believe. We would say that is not just a story. It is history. Because Christianity is gospel. It is news. It's not instruction. It's not a moral code. It is news about true events that happened in Palestine almost 2,000 years ago. It is news declaring what God has done in the world through Jesus to rescue us from sin and death. So John Updike, who himself is not really a believer, he understands the implications here. He wrote this. He said, make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acid rekindle, the church will fail. There is no Christianity without it. In other words, he goes on. He says, let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. He's saying, look, if you're going to believe in Christianity, you've got to believe in what Christianity itself claims to be. And here it is. The body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb. It is in heaven. But heaven is not there and the earth here. The reality of the resurrection is now in Jesus' resurrected body, those two things have become a single created reality. Jesus is not there and not here. He's not there and we're here. There is here and here is there. Heaven and earth are now one singularity because his heart began to beat and he drew in the first breath of the new creation. And so when we say we believe in resurrection, we're saying that we believe that Jesus has truly been raised. But then lastly, if you say you believe, believing in resurrection means that you believe that because Jesus has been raised, then you will be too. Look at verse 14. He who raised the Lord, Jesus, will raise us also with him. He was raised. That's heiress active verb, referring to a single past action. He, he was raised. We will be raised. He raised Jesus, aorist, you know, aorist verb, single past action, he will raise you, future active verb, and faith connects the two. The two are tied to one another. Because this happened, this will happen also. So when you believe, you're united to him, you're tied to him. What goes for him goes for you. Wherever he goes, you go too. He goes down into death, guess what? You go with him. He was raised, you're raised with him too. He has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that if you believe, you're seated there too. Right now. But let's stop and ask, what exactly does that mean? I mean, Jesus himself said it better than I can. He said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you know what that means? If you believe in him, then the end of your life won't be death. There will be no end to your life. Though you die, you will live. Death will be the doorway into eternal life. You will be more alive on the other side of death than you are now. You will enter into the new heavens and the new earth, reality that Jesus has already entered ahead of you. And it's such a sure thing. Paul says, you're already there with him. But that's not all. The text has a more focused application even than that. It says, God has raised Jesus past. He will raise you also future. That's, that's what's coming for you at the end of your life on earth. But you live in between, which means because your life is bracketed by Jesus' resurrection in the past and your resurrection in the future, that from all the time from then to now, all of the days of your life, you can expect resurrection in the days of your life now. 
Listen to Paul's description of the way a Christian lives. He says, verse 11, we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That's life in a fallen world, a life of love. Here's what he says. You can expect it to be a series of deaths, but it's okay. You can do it. And here's why, because Jesus is alive. And so the narrative structure of your life, if you follow him, is not death. It is just as his life, death and resurrection. Every time you're given over to death, there's the promise of resurrection. And faith is the courage to go down into whatever, whatever death you've been assigned, knowing that God will come and get you and raise you up out of it. That's the promise of this text. I want to come back to that in just a minute, but hang in there with me. And here's what I want to say before we move on. Believing in the resurrection then means you believe something about God and you believe that Jesus has truly been raised and therefore you will be raised too, not just in death at the end of your life, but in every death you die in obedience to Jesus from here to there. But how do you believe? How then do you believe? So if you look back at verse 6, it's an important part of what Paul is saying here. He talks about the movement of a person coming to faith in this way. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the lesson here is that this is a truth that is so big. It's a truth that is so all-encompassing. It is a truth that is so life-shattering that you can't believe it without help. Paul is referring to the creation here. The moment when God spoke into the darkness with a single word, light, right? In Genesis chapter 1, and there was light. And that is the image that he offers to describe the spiritual light. That we are all in a, the same state of darkness and chaos and nothingness that the world was in before the creation. That's our spiritual condition apart from God. And we will stay that way until God shines into the darkness with the light of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Here's the lesson. You can't know on your own. You have to be given to know. You can't just decide to believe because faith doesn't come from you. It comes from God. We are on our own slow to believe. We are spiritually dull. And so the text is pressing us that we need a movement of God to come and shine the light of the gospel in our hearts to help us believe. Otherwise, we will stay in that state of unbelief. We're at the mercy of God. And I want you to know where you are so you know how to pray this morning. Because the resurrection compels us to believe. But secondly, not only to believe, it also compels us to obey. Because the core of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. But if you believe it, it makes a whole new way of living possible. You believe it, and then you begin to do it. You begin to practice it. You practice resurrection. It's a phrase that I borrowed from a Wendell Berry poem. In other words, the resurrection is a truth so big you can't believe it and not be changed by it. You begin, as you believe, to live a resurrected life. And by that, I mean this, that the events of Easter repeat themselves in the people of Easter. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ become the narrative spirituality for every Christian. As Paul says here, let's look at the text again, verses 10 and then 11 and 12. He says, he describes his life and by that, he means to describe our lives, too, as always carrying around the body of, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He goes on in the next verse, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, and here he summarizes, death is at work in us and life in you. Here's what that means. Believing the gospel leads to becoming the gospel. These verses are the description of the normal Christian life. Jesus died so that I might live, so now I die so that you can live. Death at work in me so that life can be at work in you. Paul Miller, in his J-Curve book, which goes into great detail about this, describes a time when his wife Jill was worried about their sheep 
uh, they had a sheep. Is, it, is, that the, is that the singular and the plural? It is, right? They had a sheep. His name was Ed. Uh, okay, and so I just, Ed the sheep. Uh, and they have a big piece of property they live on in rural Pennsylvania, and there was a snowstorm. And, uh, and this was kind of his definitive moments, the story Paul tells, and so I thought it would be appropriate to tell you. And so Jill, in the middle of this snowstorm, asked Paul to go out into the snow to check on Ed. Uh, but, you know, as Paul's recounting the story, there was, he didn't want to go out into the cold. In fact, they had called the vet earlier in the day to just make sure Ed was going to be okay. And the Ed said, there's no reason to worry. He's going to be completely fine. He's got all of the, it'll be, it'll be fine. There was no reason to be worried, but what mama wants, right? And so Jill was worried. And so because Paul loves his wife, he went. And guess what? Ed was fine. But Paul was cold. And Jill was warm. And he talks about that being a defining moment in his life. He realized this is how, this is how love works. This is how life works. I had to get cold so Jill could stay warm. I had to be inconvenienced so that Jill could be comforted. It was a mini death for Paul so that, Jill, so that there could be life for Jill. And it's such a small moment. Uh, but he's written an entire book on kind of the revelation that came to him out of that moment. It's a small moment, but that's practicing resurrection. And I love Paul's description, Paul Miller, not Paul the Apostle. He, med- he meditates on these verses in that book about that, about that event in his life. He says this, The pattern of substitutionary love reoriented my vision of what it was to be a Christian. For example, in those years, I enjoyed reading Time magazine. Instead of interrupting my reading of Time magazine to love, I started interrupting love to read Time. It was the difference between a life of low-level irritation at being interrupted and a life devoted to people. He says, when we understand that substitution is the heart of love, we see life through a different lens. We realize that all of life is love. Love is 24-7. Now, that might sound like hyperbole, but notice the adverb here. Paul says he uses the word always. Do you see that? More than once, actually. He describes his own life. He says, I'm always, always carrying around the body of, in the body of the death of Jesus. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Uh, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, he described his own life as daily dying. I die every day, he says, 1 Corinthians 15. I remember <laughs> when I first started to wrestle with the implications of this. True story. I, I was traveling quite a bit at the time. Long transatlantic flights. And on one flight to India, it was a 16-hour flight, Okay. And if you do that kind of travel, you know, you know, you, you get to the airport early. I got to the airport early. I paid extra to make sure I had an aisle seat because that's important. You have more room. You don't, you don't want to be stuck in the middle. You want to be able to get up and move around without having to bother other people. So I got on the plane, got settled into my seat, my aisle seat. Uh, I started to read my Bible. I was reading 1 Corinthians 15, 31. Paul says, I die every day. Next to me, this sweet little old lady sat down in the middle seat. And as the plane took off, we started, or as we were getting ready to take off, we started talking immediately. She, uh, she began to tell me how worried she was about having to sit in the middle seat because she needed to be able to get up and down to go to the bathroom because she was old and whatnot, you know. And she asked if I would trade with her. And I, there I was, reading my Bible. I told her I was a pastor. I mean, <laughs> what can you say, right? I mean, so I gave up my aisle seat. 16-hour flight. I have broad shoulders. I mean, this is, this is me on a, on a 16-hour flight, right? It's not a comfortable thing. So I gave up that aisle seat. I just want you to know. 
And I also want you to know, and this is not no joke, I want you to know that not once did that sweet old lady get up to use the bathroom in 16 hours. <laughs> not once. I had to get up two or three times, climb over her, you know. Not her. Not a single trip to the bathroom. I got bamboozled by a sweet old lady. And I got to my hotel 32 hours later or whatever, and I was still pretty upset. I took out my journal. I died today, right? <laughs> and it became real to me. I mean, I felt magnanimous in my virtue. But the reality is, Paul says, that's just normal. It's the kind of thing that should always be happening to those who follow Jesus. Daily. Always. And yes, I said happening to us because notice how he puts it here. It says that we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Given over. Handed over. God sent that little old lady to sit next to me on that airplane. In other words, God does not spare us daily dying. He arranges for it. But why? Why would he do it like that? The text gives two answers. And the first is because it is the way resurrection comes to others. Jesus died so that we could be raised. So now we die so that others can be raised. You see that verse 12? Death at work in us, but life at work in you. Death for me is, not, is the cause of life for you. Death for me is the cause God uses to bring life to you. So God daily gives husbands over to death so that their wives can live. Can live. And he daily gives wives over to death for their husbands. Parents are always given over to death so that their kids can live. Jesus said, unless a seed dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So in marriage, in parenting, in friendship, in leadership, in teaching, in owning a business, fruit, joy, peace, life, in all of those things, in others, there's one way it comes, by your death. Just like the old Puritan prayer says, Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. He was stripped that I might be clothed. He was wounded that I might be healed. He was thirsty that I might drink. He wept that our tears might be wiped away. He was shamed to give us glory so we love one another. The second reason is that God arranges it this way because he loves to manifest his glory by coming to the rescue. Twice it talks about the life of Jesus being manifested in us. And that word just means displayed, put on display. The power of God to raise the dead, both Jesus and us. Increasing thanksgiving, Paul says, to the glory of God. So God delights in making us weak and then saving us to show his strength. He hands us over to death in order to bring resurrection, which puts his power and love on display. And that truth makes possible a couple of things, just as I close. The first is it makes possible what Paul describes here that's just so compelling to me. I'm going to call it a resilient weakness. So look there. He says we have this treasure, verse 7, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are jars of clay, easily breakable, fragile, common, and here's what we're meant to say. Don't be afraid of your weakness. Don't shy away from it. When you're weak, right? When you're weak, then you are strong because it's God's strength. I mean, which is the surpassing power? God's strength is the surpassing power. That, that word is hyperbole. 
right? It's a hyperbole of power. Your strength will always reach a breaking point, but God has surpassing power, and it's yours, but it's only yours when you're weak. So spiritual growth is evidenced not by what we would call the victorious Christian life. Spiritual growth is evidenced by the increase of humility and dependence and gratitude and a resilient weakness. The ability, as Paul says here, to be afflicted but not crushed and perplexed but not despairing and struck down but not destroyed. I mean, things are coming at you. You're in a, you're in a, you know, you're in a fight and you're getting punched in the head, but no matter how many times you get punched in the head, nothing knocks you down because you're not operating in your strength, you're operating in his. You're weak but not crushed or destroyed, or despairing because you're weak. And that's true resiliency, right? I mean, that's resiliency. And that's the Christian life. But not just being able to approach life with that kind of resilient weakness, but also hope. Hope. Because the passage begins and ends with the same statement. Did you notice? Verse 1 and verse 16. It, It frames the whole text. Paul says twice, we do not lose heart. It's so hard, isn't it? To face life and not lose your courage and just give in to despair or cynicism or to go through that process of daily dying for others and not just get worn out by it and become cynical or self-centered or whatever the case might be. It's so hard, but Easter means, Easter means there's always hope, right? Like the old preacher, I don't even know who it was, who everybody quotes on Easter weekend said he had a whole sermon. It may be Friday, Right? But Sunday's on the way. My dad just told me who it was. S.M. Lockridge, in case you're wanting to look that up later. Thanks for keeping the preacher on his toes, Dad. We do not lose heart. Because despite whatever death we might be enduring, Jesus is alive. Right? Everything's going to be okay. His resurrection means there's a resurrection coming for me too. Every time. Now, I may not know how or when or what it will look like. It may not even happen in this life. But here's the thing. Listen, ultimately, in the totality of all things, every hard thing we endure, the text goes on to say, will become an eternal weight of glory. In other words, a reality and a beauty and a consolation and a reward that will be so wonderful that it will make every affliction and loss seem light in comparison. So whatever today is for you, Tomorrow is full of promise because Jesus is not dead. He's alive. So to practice resurrection means to live for that ultimate future in spite of the worries and the challenges of today. To follow Jesus, to follow Jesus as he gives you over to death, knowing that on the other side of death comes resurrection. To live for that ultimate future in spite of the worries and challenges of today. William Barry's advice in the poem I mentioned, he says, he says this. I like these words. He says, invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. Listen to the carrion. Put your ears close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. Practice resurrection. So at the end of this chapter... Paul says, says it like this. He says, look to things that are unseen, not to things that are seen. That's his kind of summary application, and perhaps it's the best application for Easter Sunday. Look to things that are unseen and not to things that are seen. Do you know what that means? 
Nothing is what it seems. Anything is possible. Everything is going to be okay. Do you know why I feel confident telling you that this morning? Because Jesus is alive. And so we say with the psalm, with the, with the hymnist, believers, hail your rising head, the first begotten from the dead, your resurrection sure through his to endless life and boundless bliss. Pray with me if you would. So Father, thank you for this good word to us this morning of the promise of resurrection, power and life and glory that is ours so that we would be people who would possess the heart the courage, the strength, the resiliency to continue to follow you as you so graciously hand us over to death. Death at work in us so that life might be work in others. This is the way of things. It's the way the world gets healed. And it's the abundant life that you've called us to, but we need, <laughs> we need so much courage and so much strength and so much vision and so much hope to live that way and so even now as we contemplate these truths would you fill our hearts with the reality of them and even as we sing would this song be the expression of the explosion of joy and peace and hope in our hearts that can come by facing the reality of an empty tomb he is not there he is risen that is good news so help us celebrate, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the resurrection is such a big truth that you need help believing it. And if you need help believing this morning, here's what the scripture says to you. Call upon the name of the Lord. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So call upon him this morning. But it's such a big truth that if you believe, you can't help but be changed by it. And so if there are places in your life where you have not yet integrated into the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus for you as he calls you to go and die and promises to raise you up for the sake of others, then again, turn to him knowing that this is true, that because of the work of Christ for you, because of this glorious resurrection Sunday, whatever you're handed over to in this next week, it comes from the Father's loving hands because of all that Jesus has done for you. So receive this benediction as the promise that whatever comes your way this week, it comes from a father who loves you because of the work of the son for your sake. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Happy Easter. Go in his peace.